Hola, and welcome to a big interview from the vault. Look, all right, no fooling around. We asked our socios, our members, our supporters at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter to pick their favourite from season two of this long running and I have to say much loved show. You're about to hear one of the interviews they picked as the best from a selection which included international footballers representing Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Bulgaria, Argentina, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Here's what I had to say about this one when we recorded during season 2016-2017. Matt Letizia was the ultimate local hero. Great film, by the way. Simply exquisite talent. Matt could have played for any team in England, really, truthfully, for any team in Europe, but instead opted to stay at Southampton during his whole career. Matt explains his Enid Blyton-esque childhood on Guernsey, how much it formed him and shaped his attitudes for the rest of his life. And that moment when, almost as if it was scripted, he scored the last ever goal at the Dell before Southampton moved to St Mary's. Matt Letizia is fascinating on battling for survival at Southampton, plus the burden of responsibility that he felt on his shoulders while trying to keep the club in the top flight. Matt explains why Glenn Hoddle was the only manager he swore at during his career, and listen closely for reflections on Ronnie Eklund, the lost genius of European football, just luxuriate in Matt Letizia, sensational footballer, Substantial, warm, interesting man. Enjoy. I, I suppose I start the same way all the time because this is what it makes me sincerely feel. It's a privilege to meet you and to be able to chat soccer with you. Thank you. Uh, Matthew Letissi, because you had gifts that so few people in football over my entire lifetime <laughs> possessed and used them brilliantly. We're here in the Grosvenor House Hotel. You can explain <laughs> how you did it all. One of the things that stands out to me that I want to ask you about is um, football for the pure joy of playing it, inventing things, football for the pure joy of making people happy uh, and a spectacle. I think that was part of your attitude to the sport over your career. True? And did it help you? Yeah, 100%. Uh, 100% true. I always knew that I was given a gift that, that I could play football pretty well and I always knew I wanted it to be my, my job. But I knew it was an entertainment industry and for me, going out and, and trying things, trying different things that other people couldn't do, that weren't brave enough to try and do, was one of the things that gave me the buzz about going out on a match day and doing things that would make an entire stadium get on their feet and give you a round of applause. It, it, was, just a, it was just the most fantastic feeling for me to see a, kind of a stadium erupt just because of something that I've just done with a football. One of the things that makes us feel satisfied about choice of guest is when so many of our guests use phrases that have come up before in the interviews without me having to prompt them, and bravery is one, because... I've always been um, entranced by uh, uh, the idea that amongst British footballers, we've always had a certain sense of bravery that would be about 
against the odds or physicality mm. or in the old days, I don't know if you remember, maybe Liverpool going and playing away and dominating Europe, but Sui having to knock somebody's jaw out of the socket. <laughs> and but, but you're talking about an entirely different type of bravery, mm. risk-taking, creativity, mm. trying something, showing for the ball when you're not sure if you're in form or you're not sure if someone's going to clog you from back and ruin your, your Achilles. <laughs> Talk to me, why did you use that word bravery and, and did you feel the risk or did it stimulate you? The risk stimulated me. Um, I liked being that person that will take a chance, being that person that will do something a little bit different that will make him stand out from all the other people. That was kind of one of the the things about football that I loved and it was one of the things really that I've got um, my youth team manager at Southampton Dave Merrington uh, I have a lot to thank him for because he saw that in me and he didn't try knocking it out of me he could see what I could do with the ball he saw what I could do in training and he didn't shackle me in any way when I was in the youth team at Southampton to try and knock that out of me uh, and I'll be eternally grateful to, to him for that because it meant that I could grow and not play football with any fear um, and that was kind of one of my biggest strong points in my career, I think. Because football is a fearful industry, right? It's a fearful industry because people are fearful of losing. But I think sometimes in the, in the midst of it all, I think people somewhere along the line have forgotten that people pay good money to come and watch the game. And for me, it's an entertainment industry and people want to go away feeling good that they've seen something that's kind of made them feel joyous and yes that is their team winning but it goes a little bit deeper than that I'm in a habit of just asking what I'm curious about she said you were given a gift but before we go into sort of theology or religion or anything <laughs> like that if I asked you how far would you've got in your life with just your natural talent would that be right in speculating that not as far because I have the inkling that all great players of your talent almost all of them have, have practised to a huge oh, yeah. degree at some stage in their life. And I don't really mean training sessions. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. I practice as a kid. I can just remember having a football at my feet a lot of the time. Mm. A lot of the time. I mean, when the summer months came round, I was playing cricket and it was a cricket mm. ball for, for the whole of the summer. Um, but during the football season, I, I played a lot with my friends around the estate that I lived on. If there was nobody around, I'd create little games for myself. You, you had to have an imagination about like where the goal might be. Or... Yeah, yeah. So I had a, I had a, at my house, uh, just outside my front door, I had an area where I could throw a tennis ball against the wall and I would come back off the wall and I'd chest and volley against the back of the shed of next door's house. So it was, we, you know, we lived in a terrace house and the back of their shed backed onto our front patio. Mm -hmm. So I just I can remember it in detail now. There was like a couple of lines. It was split into thirds. The back of the shed had a line down and a line down. So there was three parts. And I'd throw the ball up and I'd make sure that it never went in the middle one because that's where the goalkeeper was stood. Mm -hmm. And it was always, I'd go for the bottom corners uh, each time. And you'd be challenging yourself to make sure you did it. it yeah, it, absolutely. So I would stand there. I, I, I can remember playing games like, right, I'm going to throw 10 balls against that wall and I'm going to chest and volley it. And if I get nine out of 10 in those two side thirds, I'm going to be a professional footballer. Mm. And that's the game that I play with myself. Mm. And just just little things like that, really. Just invent games. When recently making a film, I had the great privilege of speaking to Andres Iniesta again. And I asked him about, if you remember the goal in 2009 at Stamford Bridge, where the first leg, Chelsea against Barcelona has been 0-0. 
And Essien has scored for Chelsea, and to the last seconds, with Hiddink in charge of um, Chelsea, it, it's been Chelsea in the final in Rome. And uh, the ball comes to the back edge of the Chelsea box, and instead of dribbling, Messi lays a nice carpet ball pass to Iniesta, and he shoots and scores and beats Czech in the top corner. And I, I mistakenly thought great players have got this computer sort of Mission Impossible brain assessing space and trajectory and <laughs> all that. And he went, I didn't think about anything. The ball came to me, I knew I had to score, and I just kicked it. And he explained it that when you work as hard as they do on their skills, it's just automatic. Mm. To, to what extent does that apply to the special things you could do with the ball? Yeah, I, I think there are times in foot matches where I did things which were completely and utterly automatic. And I actually, to the point of sometimes I would do something in the game and it would be televised and I'd have to go back and watch the game <laughs> to work out how I got the other side of the defender. Because in the, in the moment, I'd done something and I got the other side of him and I didn't really know what I'd done. And so I, I'd watch it back on the TV and go, ah, oh, OK, that's how I did that. Shifted the ball there and there and I went. But in the moment... It happens so quickly and you just do it automatically. You, you just don't think about it. See, I th- one of the things in preparing for this, one of the things that, I'm not being rude to other people, but I found I felt cliched and boring was a lot of talk and obsession about whether during your career you were you know, an Olympic athlete or not. I look at, I'm, I met Zidane, I've met Valeron. I don't know how much you were able to watch Valeron. Mm, yeah, not a lot. I, I, I meet you now, I watched you during your career. And physically, your size, in terms of height and broadness of shoulders and whatever links you a lot and I think that it's obviously a, a great advantage because it's a very physical sport which I think most spectators and probably most journalists don't understand that it's a very physical sport yeah. but your balance and the things you've just been talking about doing that's not all what you did with your feet movement and being able to judge space and, mm. and when to turn somebody or if you're dribbling you, you need enormous physical Coordination, self-confidence. Again, a lot of footballers, in my view, mm. don't have. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. About yeah. This. No, I've always, always found that I was able to. Uh, my balance was always very good, but not just that. I was able to feel where my defenders yeah. of their body weight was. Body weight meaning centre of gravity. So their centre of gravity to, to know. Which way they could turn quickly and which way they can't turn. How quickly. did you? Know, how did that come to you? Have you never analysed it ever? No, not really. I, I kind of just. I couldn't even to this day. I'm, I'm thinking about it now, uh, and I can picture myself lining up a defender one on one and using my body to get him to shift his body weight. But yes. I know where I'm going, and once his body weight shifted and I go the other way, I just know that kind of if I do something, he's going to react to it. But I know. Once I've done it and he's reacted, I'm off. Because I wasn't the quickest, I guess I'd had to, I had to hone that skill better than most people yes. to be able to get me away from people. If you can encapsulate a little bit about um, a childhood and a young adult who spent on your island, what would people not realise that it was like, and what, why, why was it such a central part of your character? Uh, I think probably what people wouldn't realise was probably the the laid-back nature of growing up on an island like Guernsey. Mm -hmm. And it was very carefree. I think looking back now, I didn't realise how lucky I was to have grown up where I did. At the time, you kind of took it for granted because you didn't know any different. But from from lads that I spoke to in my age who grew up in England, 
I'm telling them what my childhood was like. They were going, what? Really? So, you, you know, you'd just be left, at, I'd be you know, in the summer holidays, school summer holidays, you know, we'd be left to our own devices for the day. Mum and Dad go off to work, spend the time on the beach, down the playing fields of a, a local school, and you kind of just knew when it was tea time, you just rock back home at tea time. Mm. Mum and Dad were never worried, you were always, you were always kind of there or thereabouts. I don't remember locking doors when we were, when we were kids. You kind of, your, door, your back door was always open. Even to this day, actually, I still see in Guernsey the honesty boxes on the side of the road, people selling things on the, on the hedges outside their house, and they'll have the, the little tin that you stick the money in, and they kind of don't see that very much over here anymore. A sense of community would... would... Oh, very much so, uh, a, a very tight-knit community. Everybody knew everybody. I think uh, I, I came from a big family, so I, I had three brothers, but I also... Uh, my mum came from from a big family. My, my grandparents, who are still alive now, my granddad's 96 now, he had double-digit siblings. My grand, who's 91, she, still going, she had double-digit siblings. Mm-hmm. So there was always a massive sense of, of family around, you know, some, some fantastic Christmases spent with everybody at my grand's house and everyone feeding them from my grand, who just would turn up. And it was just a, a lovely one. My, my grand lived... So I kind of I lived on an estate. At the bottom of my estate was my school, mm-hmm. and the other side of my school was my grand's house. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of I lived within about a 600 yard radius. And my my, uh, my local club Val Rec, who I played for, was probably about maybe a mile and a half from my house, and that was kind of where I lived. My parents also were obviously very supportive in, in what I was trying to do in the football field, but they were also kind of uh, very supportive in terms of of me being a bit different. Mm-hmm. When I was playing sports, and you know, I try things on a football pitch, and I'd never, I'd never once remember my mum and dad going, "Why didn't you, why didn't you pass to that guy there instead of trying dribbling past those three blokes?" I never once had that. Scoring the final goal at Adele. Mm. Now it's your story. I'll let you tell it, but I've got a supplementary about that goal. First of all, I know I've jumped a huge amount, but we like to get the readers' questions in. The Dell is is going to be no more. It's Arsenal last ever game. Set the scene if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, so that particular season, 2000-2001, I'd, I'd spent a lot of that season injured. You know, the season was drawing to a close. I think Arsenal had... I think they'd already won the title that year. Or they'd come second to Manchester United. We'd beaten Manchester United a couple of weeks before. United and Arsenal finished first and second. So Arsenal came to us on the last day of the season. I'd just managed to get myself free from injury. I'd been out quite a few weeks. The manager at the time, Stuart Gray came to me on the Tuesday of the game and he said to me you're going to be substitute on Saturday and I'll guarantee you for what you've done uh, for this football club I'm going to guarantee you that at the end of that game you're going to be on the pitch because you deserve to be so that was on the Tuesday and I went to bed every night that week knowing that I was going to be on the pitch and dreaming of scoring the last goal of the day I think in terms of raw emotion even when I talk about it now, I can feel myself getting a little bit choked up about it. Good. Um, because it was kind of... I, I think I just wanted... I felt like it was my destiny to score the last goal of that stadium after all that had done to, to kind of get us away from it. There were things about that goal which are natural because you'd worked for them and earned them. Hmm. You're good at scoring, you handled pressure well. But what correlation is there between dreaming about success, mm-hmm. visualising success, getting yourself 
somehow it's not quite what Gary Player and Jackie Stewart said about the, the more I practice the luckier I get it's not quite that <laughs> no. there's some sort of or is there destiny no I think there is a, a definite correlation I think if you're I think your mind is so powerful that I think if you think about doing something enough in your mind when that moment comes in reality you actually know how to deal with that because you've gone through it already six or seven times in your mind before and you know what's happening so when that situation arises, you don't freeze in the moment. It's almost like going into a, a kind of a state of just complete calmness mm-hmm. and just letting everything flow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of... I've heard golfers talk about it a little bit. When they're in the zone, they're in that moment where they're just kind of... The swing just flows and they don't feel pressure. They're just in that zone and everything just flows. And that was kind of what happened when that ball fell to me on the edge of the box. It wasn't an easy chance. If you put that ball down there in training you know I might have knocked it in that top corner once or twice out of ten maybe you for know, those who haven't seen it easy to... it's, it's late so the ball it's was crowded penalty area it's, yeah I mean, it was the 88th minute of the game stood two all and the ball got kind of flicked back behind me so I was having to swivel with my weak foot uh, with my left foot and uh, it was on the half volley and I've hit it sweet as anything and just flown to the top corner. It's, yeah. it's our podcast. I, I'm not accepting Matt's description of his left foot as my weak foot. <laughs> There's a really arresting phrase in, in your book, really arresting phrase about the adrenaline of... Uh, and the sense of triumph in, in fighting relegation and winning. Mm. You, you have got very little problem with admitting that in penalties, you, you savoured the spotlight and you wanted to be the hero. I did. You genuinely, you know, like the, the attention and the focus and the scoring and the, and the joy of being the hero. I, I think the feeling when a penalty kick was given, especially at home, because obviously you, you then got 95% of the stadium that are going to go nuts if you score. So when the penalty was given, it, it kind of, it was like butterflies would go in the stomach. It was like, oh, brilliant, this is my chance. You know, it's the easiest chance I'm going to get to score a goal all game. And then, as you say, the psychological part of things, the, the mental side of things for me was eradicating all negative thoughts out of, your, out of your head. So I would then, once the penalty had been given, you get the butterflies, you get hold of the ball, put the ball down on the spot, and you kind of walk back. And I'm, all the time I'm just imagining the stadium just about to erupt and the, and the joy on everyone's faces when this ball hits the back of the net. So as I step up to the penalty... This is all in your mind, in mental all pictures. All this is going through my mind, hmm. and it's all positive. Mm-hmm. Everything that's going through my head is, is all positive. And I think that's kind of... The, one, the penalty that I missed, <laughs> obviously because I was so positive and because I just thought I was going to score every penalty I ever took, the penalty that, that was saved, that Mark Crosley saved, the, the rebound, because he's parried it straight back out to me, the rebound, I should have see, I, I think you're ignoring your own teaching there because there's a guy in the penal- edge of the penalty box, Nigel Clough, who's visualising, I'm going to kick this, I'm going to stop him from... When this rebound comes out, I'm going to get in there because he chases you <laughs> like, a, like a terrier after a tennis he ball. He does, but... And he it, gets there and he puts you off. I think he, he... I mean, he was quite close to me, but it was still a simple chance and I shouldn't Matt, have scored. you haven't yourself all your life for that one penalty. You're going to have to let this go. <laughs> Psychologically, let me tell you from my heart. I was more disappointed that I missed the rebound than I did actually see, the, the penalty was safe. I, I've heard you see that before. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not, I, you're, you're taking some credit away from young Nigel. Let, let him have his moment. It's not about Mark yeah, Crossley. Yeah. You're not, 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 I didn't really see him, to be honest. Uh, listeners, Matt is not <laughs> even interested in even playing with the thought. Eh? That's, what, that's what defines a winner. Mm-hmm. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I was lucky enough to be at Pataudry when, you know, we were winning trophies with Eddie Turnbull, Danny McLeod, and then Billy McNeil was a classy man. This fella from St. Mary came along. Ferguson... Mm-hmm. We took on Glasgow, we won the league, we took on Europe, we beat Bayern Munich, we beat Real Madrid, and it was it changed my life. I'm not going to bore people who listened to this before, but it changed my belief about what was possible in life, mm. what you could I'm achieve, sure what ambition was about, risks you might take. Leicester fans are exactly must the same be, thing as what you must saying, be yeah. feeling the same now. Yeah. My God, I didn't realise that if you act like that and think like that and work, blah, blah. If there was one time that even came close to equaling that feeling about taking on the big boys and winning trophies... It was the one season that we flirted with, really flirted with relegation. And the adrenaline and the sense of that very British us against the odds. And what was I doing? I was, you know, (laughs) watching. But it it was very seductive. And then when we got away with it, the feeling of glory, Mm. which I didn't, I've never heard anybody else talk about until I was reading what you said about life at Southampton. And (laughs) I think the one... Maybe the first one where you save yourself and you go and sit in the bus on your own. That was uh, and said to yourself or said in the book. Ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, we drew three all at West Ham. You felt like winning. It was like winning a cup. I could have more of this. These are odd sensations. That that was an odd sensation. I think the the thing about that season is kind of we'd been written off as gone. I mean, I never used to really kind of look at relegation odds back then, but. but I'd imagine we got beaten over Easter by Oldham and Man City, both at home. Both were rivals for relegation. And after that Easter weekend, it was kind of like, you're gone, you're shot. And uh, we were probably one to eight shots to go down at that point. And then we went to Norwich and we, uh, we won the magnificent game 5-4. At the time, it was the first time, but I think somebody's done it since. I think it was the, the first time that a team had ever been behind three times in a football match and came back and won. Mm-hmm. And we scored the, the winner. Ken Moncow scored a header in the last minute of the game to win the game. And I remember after that game being interviewed on the pitch and the guy said, this is after those two shocking defeats at home. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy interviewed me said, you know, how important was that? And I can remember stood there and saying, at the end of the season, I'm hoping that that goal just there is the one we look back on and go, that kept us up. And it was. We stayed up by a point, I think it was, that, that season. But that coming, that belief from coming back three times in the game, I think just reinvigorated everybody that we could actually stay up that season. And that was kind of a, a, that was a nice feeling, that 5-4 game. But getting to that last game of the season at West Ham, we drew three all and I scored a penalty and a free kick that day and I set up the other goal for Neil Madison. And when the final whistle went and we'd stayed up, it was just such a, such a relief kind of everyone was kind of really joyous in the in the change room afterwards and it, and it did feel like we'd won something but I can remember just I was just so drained for, for giving everything that I'd had in that last bit of the season to kind of make sure we stayed up that while everybody was kind of celebrating I kind of just slipped out the the change room and I was the first one on the bus and just sat at the back of the bus and it was just a, a really strange feeling of satisfaction that kind of we we were 
dead and buried, but we'd done it, and, and I played a big part in doing that. You know, I worked as a reporter when the England manager roundly lied, Glenn Hoddle, and then took the thing that he'd been asked about and sold it in his book. And over and over again, when I speak to players of talent who've worked, there's two things that come out when you speak to players that worked with him. If you were potentially as good as him, or if you were stepping in his golden sunshine, <laughs> you'd probably be put down. And secondly, it's said over and over again, and I know you're a devotee of this, that he was very, very good as a coach. Oh, very good. Yeah. Tactically, um, the best I've played under. Given that we're talking about the joy and the success and the, the thrill of football as a life, how difficult it is when somebody you idolise turns <laughs> out to be not just feet of clay, but steel toe cap, uh-huh. feet of clay as well. Yeah, I kind of guess, I mean, looking back, that was kind of one of the more disappointing aspects of my career. I think having looked up to him as an absolute hero as a kid, when I made my full debut for Southampton, it was against Spurs, he was on the pitch, it was kind of like, oh, brilliant. And then you kind of get to know him a little bit and, and it's like, oh, not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was kind of one of the disappointing things that we kind of never really got on. You know, especially as he was England manager, left me out of the 98 World Cup squad after I scored the hat-trick in the B game. It was a bit sad, and then he turned up at Southampton as the manager about a year after he'd got sacked from England, and it was just a really strange atmosphere. He kind of didn't really, you know, didn't get to see eye to eye with him. He was just a different bloke than me, I guess, at the end of the day. Again, without being mean, because we're talking about the psychology of sport and the power and the danger of that. Frankly, does jealousy come into what you experienced under him? It's difficult because you kind of try and find reasons why it was like that. Yeah. And it it kind of... There doesn't seem to... I can't find any other reason other than that why he didn't really see eye to eye with me. I don't think it's a... I mean, I'm not defending him, but I don't think it's a very unnatural thing in human life because we're all full of frailties and and, and seeing somebody maybe stealing a bit of your thunder or or listening too often to comparisons I think does get at people possibly possibly but you know I'd like to think as a human being that yes you can be compared to somebody and somebody can have an opinion that perhaps he was better than you were or you know he was on the same level as you were very similar type players I guess I'd look at it a little bit differently I'd look at it as a compliment Mm-hmm. To kind of you know, I don't I don't look at it and go somebody's comparing me to Glenn Oddle. Oh, I was way better than him. I, I look at it and go, wow, somebody's comparing mm-hmm. me to somebody who was that good. Wow, I'll take that all day. But that's kind of that's how I am. I really liked yeah. your. Um, I think at some stage I can't remember when you were at a golf tournament and you saw him sitting alone at a table and you just went up to if not make the piece, just say hi and and kind of maybe smooth over the ashes. Mm. I really like that in life. Yeah. Was it just uh, an instinct to... Uh, yeah, do you know, I think or... it was... Bit, well, obviously, I'd finished my football career. You know, there was no chance of him ever picking me again at any club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a, a think, slight calculation in there. That's no, good. it was just that, you know, it, there was this atmosphere kind of between us that we never really cleared the air from, from uh, times at Salam. He was the only manager in my career. I didn't fall out with my managers. No. At Salam. I wasn't one of those players. If I wasn't in the team, do you know what? You're not picking me. That's fine. I'll go back in the reserves. I'll work. I'll get my form back, and I'll and I'll get back in the team. That's that's how I was. Exemplary. Um, you know, even Ian Bramford, who 
kind of had completely the the opposite idea of how football should be played than, than yeah, I did. Yeah. I never fell out with it personally. The only manager I ever swore at in my entire career was, was Glenn Hoddle. And I just, at the end of my career, I just thought, you know, life's too short. Brilliant. And we were out in Dubai. It was in the hotel. We had breakfast and I thought, he sat there on his own. And I thought, no, I'm just going to go and have a chat with him because I just wanted to get it off my chest. And I apologised to him because maybe I should have been a bit more respectful as a player towards my manager. But I just thought, life's too short. I went and apologised to him and kind of got it off my chest, really. And I, I thought and we could kind of move on from there. And we, we have done and we see each other occasionally now and it's, and it's fine. That's enough in life, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm still waiting for his apology, but, you know. <laughs> I've done my bit. <laughs> when he gets round to it, I'm sure we'll be fine. <laughs> you, when your head hits the pillow, you, you're not you're not racked with guilt about not apologising to Glenn. I, I listen. I, we don't set out to be different on, on this podcast. I genuinely think that not just football life could do with more attitudes like that. I damn it, he'll tell you. I could learn from that. <laughs> we'll let Richard Byers come in now. Ninety-four-five. I know Richard. Was Matt's best season. Part of that season. He was playing alongside Ronnie Eckland. If Ronnie had stayed fit and signed, would we have won something? It was the best that we've seen at Southampton, brackets, until recent years. And not just do I want to know your view on, on Ronnie. I, I was obsessed by Ronnie Eckland when I was a kid. Oh, were you? I had a, I had a friend who knew him and, and eventually met his representative somehow. And he was this player that had heard these massive stories about his talent and his mm. individuality and whatever and then because TV as you said wasn't as all encompassing then there was no internet I didn't really see enough of him mm. and, and therefore for many years I just I cursed I never saw this guy and his back injury yeah. so it's a good question from Richard one would you have won something? Would we have won something? I mean, that would have been a big ask. Um, you know, I mean, we were in, in those... We finished 10th that season. Running only played... I think Running only played about 20 games or so for Southampton. But that season that, that we played, we got on brilliantly off the pitch as, as well as on it, but just had a almost an instant telepathy on the football pitch. We knew what each other was thinking and we knew where the ball was going to be going. We knew where to run. We knew where we could find each other. And that, that season for me was the most fun that I had on a football pitch playing alongside Ronnie obviously you need kind of more than just a couple of guys <laughs> to go and win a trophy but you know for us a 10th place finish at, at that point and it was great timing that we did it because obviously we'd been struggling at the wrong end of the table for a few years and that season was the season when four teams went down for the mm-hmm. Premier League it's almost as if we knew we got to pull a finger out here if not, you, if you ever had around. to look lively it was then <laughs> so, uh, so yeah we, we had a, a strong finish to that season and uh, we climbed up but in telling us a bit more about him for those who are you're young and don't know anything about him what, you're going to allow so, me to hear about one of my heroes and you're going to talk about one of the most important men in your life yeah so that, that season kind of was just brilliant we had one I never get the way it came about we were out in a pre-season in Holland and Barcelona were at the same pre-season training camp um, Jan Cruyff was manager at Barcelona at the time Borley was manager of Raz the two them two were good friends and they'd spoken over dinner and Johan had said to Alan you know how's your squad looking do you need anything what, what can I help you and, uh, and Borley said we could, yeah, we could do with someone to, to play with Matt Letizia we've got this lad who can play we could do with somebody who's on kind of and Johan looked at him and he said uh I'll leave you a present in the morning. So we came down the next morning and Ronnie was just sat in reception on his own with his pair of boots and his bag. <laughs> and Barcelona had buggered off and he'd been left there on his own to come and train with us. And from that very first training session, he was just like, oh, the lads were looking around going, jeez, 
this guy can't get in the Barcelona team. <laughs> We're like, whoa. And he was just superb. His first touch was brilliant. His movement off the ball, he was so clever, a very brainy footballer. And that was just heaven for me to play alongside him. You know, um, I think in the repetitive nature of people asking, and we have questions here, about choosing not to leave Southampton, one of the things that maybe makes people still curious is the fact that it might have been the case that had you chosen a... Had they come in for you two, whether it was a Barcelona or Real Madrid or a Liverpool or a Manchester United or Spurs, it might have been that for four or five seasons you might have played with five or six Ronnie Eklund-style players around you because mm-hmm. that's what sometimes clubs with bigger budgets do groom and put together. Yep. So irrespective of the leaving or not leaving of Southampton or the trophies, or they, that, that must leave you with a sense of, if it's not regret, an itch that you haven't scratched because you talked about the happiness of having somebody on the wavelength, yeah. same wavelength as you. But, I, but that was great and I was, and I was happy. But by the same token, I also loved the challenge of still keeping Southampton in the Premier League, even though we didn't have the best players. And I kind of, I felt like if I left Southampton and the following season they got relegated. Oh, my word. I felt like that that would be on my head. Yeah. Wow. That's how I felt about it. That's an extraordinary responsibility to have carried around throughout your playing career. And that's that's kind of one of the big reasons why I stayed. I loved it at Southampton. I love the area that I live in. Yes. Fantastic. The fans were always brilliant to me. But Southampton gave me my chance to be a professional footballer. And because of the way we were, and, and we were one of those teams that were kind of mostly fighting relegation throughout my career, I felt a responsibility to the city that we're not going to get relegated, especially when the talk of the new stadium was going on and a lot of the new stadium depended on us keeping our Premier League status. And so kind of when we moved to the new stadium, it was almost like a relief we've kind of got there mm-hmm. that's been done now you know, the club are financially stable we can get bigger crowds in to help us compete better and so kind of my job was kind of done really and I was getting on a bit I'd start to have quite a lot of injuries and, and the such like so I only had the, the one season at St Mary's so kind of when we got relegated three seasons later and then went into administration it was just like during those periods of time it was like, it was like somebody had like stuck a knife in me because I can just remember thinking, I've just grafted me nuts off for years and years to put the club in that position. And now, in the space of three years, it's all gone to ratchet, we're in administration, now we're playing in League One. You know, and it was like, geez. And that, what was that period also, once, once you'd given everything and made certain choices as a man, uh, not just as a footballer, if I'm not wrong, it must have felt to you that the decline was racked with stupidity. Yes. And that it was... A limp surrender. It was gross stupidity, and I and I did the. I was co-commentating on the game at St Mary's against Manchester United when we last day of the season when we got relegated officially. And having played in so many games on the last day of a season where we needed something to stay up, I couldn't believe what I witnessed that day from those professional footballers because that was that wouldn't have happened in our day. And I know it's it, old players going, well, it wasn't like that in my day. No, I but, don't think that's what we're listening to. But I didn't see any fight in that team to stay up and any pride in their football club to try and keep that team in the division on that day. And think, that, that hurt me. We want to finish now. I don't want to be a mushy finish, but I do want to ask you something about... It felt um, very much when we were looking at your 
life and your career and what you've said about it. That, and particularly when you, you talk in the book about wages, and you're really open, which is very unusual in football. <laughs> Maybe partially that's inspired you to go into the advice and representation agency that you've got with Franny Benali. And yep. I'll bet you a million dollars or more that anybody who chooses to take your counsel and be guided by you as a group, I'm quite certain that, that their choices will, will be good. But you're really unusual in being frank about money. And the Southampton question is the, probably the most asked you ever get. But am I, is it feasible to say that you actively chose happiness in your life? That in quite a lot of situations, you took the time to think about what was the thing that motivated you rather than mm. being guided by an instinct or somebody pushing you. Or, and that you, you use the phrase laid back all the time. I, I think I'm talking to a guy who went, I value being happy over... Yeah, 100%. And that was kind of one of the, the things growing up in Guernsey. This me, I, I grew up on a council estate in Guernsey. I don't remember going on family holidays abroad, any of that kind of stuff as a kid. But I had one of the, the happiest childhoods you can imagine. Loved every second of it and didn't need money to be happy. And that kind of was one of the reasons. I loved football. I was good at it. The money wasn't anything to do with, with why I became a footballer. Not a single bit of it. If a footballer was paid less than a plumber... I'd have still been a footballer, mm -hmm. no matter what. And that was kind of what, what I felt like I was here to do. Mm -hmm. And any decisions that I made were kind of never about money. I earned a good wage, don't get me wrong. I, I had a very comfortable life. Although in the days there were plumbers earning more than Southampton players. Oh, yeah, there probably was. <laughs> <laughs> that, was not the, that was not my main motivation. Money wasn't my main motivation. Trophies weren't my main motivation. That's why people kind of didn't get and they can't understand why I didn't move you know, but you would have earned so much more money you would have won trophies that wasn't why I wanted to be a footballer I wanted to be a footballer because I loved playing football and I loved putting smiles on people's faces showing them what I could do and it didn't matter what shirt I had on when I was doing it I just wanted to be happy in my life and happy in my football and I could do that so that is the podcast equivalent a swivel and a left foot finish <laughs> into the top right hand corner of Alex Manninger's net. <laughs> um, God has brought you to us on this table, Matthew Letizier. <laughs> Flippin' heck. That was majestic. Thank you. Cheers, Graham. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to the big interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.